Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as the song says, speak, O oh Lord, for we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Amen. Well, have you ever bought something that turned out to be poorly or dishonestly made? I remember back in grade school, sometimes using cheap pencils. It probably seemed like a great deal to my parents or to the school that was providing them. And they wrote well enough, but they showed their cheapness when it came to erasing. Because when you went to erase something with a cheap pencil, even if it was for the first time, it always seemed like one of two things happened. Either the eraser completely broke off from the pencil, or it just left a prominent smudge mark, which defeated the purpose of erasing in the first place. Of course, because of shoddy craftsmanship, I quickly learned to avoid the cheap pencils in school if I could help it. I also remember a car that Em and I used to own a diesel-powered Volkswagen Jetta. It was a pretty good car, mostly reliable, pretty good looking. It was a turbocharged diesel, it had a turbo jar, <laughs> it had a turbocharged diesel engine that advertised more than 40 miles per gallon. But actually driving the car seemed to yield an even better rate. We would drive it around and note that we had more than 50 miles per gallon. Which, if you kids don't know, that's a pretty amazing production for a car. Saving us a lot of money. We thought we had secured an amazing deal on this car. But the story ended up being too good to be true. In 2015, the Volkswagen emissions scandal broke out. So-called Dieselgate. <laughs> revealing that the uh, reason why the car was performing so well was because it was totally breaking the rules about how much pollution it was allowed to produce. A Volkswagen engineer had installed on the diesel cars a bit of software that made the car perform differently in testing than in real life. Basically, the cars were lying about the level of emissions they produced. Volkswagen, of course, got in huge trouble once this information was known. They were required to buy back or give a repair plus compensation to all of those who had bought their turbocharged diesel engine cars. So we ended up selling back our deceptively made car to Volkswagen. These days, when I think about products that are poorly or dishonestly made, I often think about houses. I remember that someone warned us at the beginning of our housing search to beware of buying a flipped house. A house that was recently in bad shape, but that someone bought, quickly fixed up, and then put back on the market to sell for a profit. Now, sometimes houses flipped from bad to good can end up being a really great deal. But it all depends on how carefully the home was renovated. Because, unfortunately, many home resellers are only interested in getting maximum bang for a minimum buck. And so they will use the cheapest options in upgrading or fixing a house. They don't pay attention to the details. They don't take the necessary time that various jobs in the house require. 
and they sometimes make changes to the house without the necessary legal permits or without keeping the building up to code. So the result of many flipped houses is a house that looks good, looks clean, modern, attractive, but on closer examination, it's poor quality and going to lead to considerable frustration and cost to whoever buys and lives in that home. Now, I mention these examples of poor quality construction to you because as we began to see together last week, we Christians have been called to a construction project of our own to build up the church, to build up one another in the church. The Bible says that we as the redeemed people of God have become God's temple, the very dwelling place of God, a spiritual building. In Christ, we are spiritually joined to him and to one another as stones are joined together in a building. And though we've been brought into this church, this building, it needs upkeep. God's temple needs repair and upgrade and expansion and beautification. God claims ultimate responsibility for this project. He will build his church, yet he chooses to work through us, the members of the church, the stones of the church. We are therefore called to practice continual and mutual upbuilding in the church. This is for our good and for God's glory. But considering the construction we see in the world, we must be careful how we construct or seek to construct God's church. We must be careful about this upbuilding because it cannot be a slapdash operation. It cannot be cavalier or careless when it comes to building God's home which is also our home, our spiritual home. We must make sure that we are building this structure correctly. But how do we do that? How exactly should we construct God's church? How should we engage in the spiritual discipline of the church so that we indeed build up each other rightly? Well, I want to finish talking to you about the answer to that question from God's word today. This is Disciplines of Grace, the Church, Part 4. As part of disciplining ourselves for godliness, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 4.7, God calls us to certain effort-filled activities for our own spiritual health and growth. And these are the discipline of the Bible, the discipline of prayer, and the discipline of the church. We've been exploring the discipline of the church together over the last several weeks, looking at both the why and the how of our devotion to one another in the church. Now, last week we began looking at the how, and we saw the first three of six principles, six principles from the Bible to maximize mutual upbuilding, you building up others and they building up you in the church really looking to answer the question, how should you engage in the church to best please God, benefit others, and bless yourself? Well, number one, you must engage in the church biblically. This is review now. Engage in the church biblically. God declares in 1 Timothy 3 that he has shown us in his word both what the church is and how to conduct oneself in it, how you should participate. He's basically given us the building plans. Therefore, we must not engage in church according to our own ideas or feelings, 
but we must allow our thinking and feelings to be transformed by the Word of God, by God's perfect Word. Number two, you must engage in the church comprehensively. You must engage in the church comprehensively. The discipline of the church is not simply gathering for an hour and a half each Sunday morning, though that is good. That's a start. I'm glad you're all here to do that. But God's construction work requires more than that. The people of God need more than that, and so do you, as one of the people of God. Just as the Acts 2 church engaged in all kinds of sharing, ministry, and expressions of love toward one another, so should we, if we want to experience the mutual upbuilding that God designed for us to experience. And then number three, you must engage in the church humbly. Engage in the church humbly. The church will never be the blessing site of mutual upbuilding that God meant if the people are not humble. And that's not just for other people in the church to hear, those other construction workers. Yeah, he needs to be humble. No, it starts with you, and it starts with me. It starts with each one of us. We must remember, even as was prayed and sung in the service today, all the undeserved blessings that we have received in Christ and how kindly he treats us still, even though we often fail. This should teach us to adopt a gracious, patient, and other, others-oriented mindset in the church. Really, according to Philippians 2, which we looked at together last time, we are to have Christ's own attitude of humility in ourselves, giving up by taking the position of slave our own rights and privileges and interest and for the sake of others. It's what Jesus did. It's what he teaches us to do. So these three principles we've already seen. But how else should we discipline ourselves for the church? How else, according to the Bible, should we engage in the church to maximize mutual upbuilding? Well, let's look at the three other principles today, starting with number four. Number four, engage in the church courageously. Engage in the church courageously. I think one of the main reasons why we don't often engage more in the church is fear. We are afraid of failure. We are afraid of what other people will think if we act. We are afraid of getting hurt, becoming embarrassed, or hurting the ones that we're trying to help. We feel often so inadequate, unable to serve, unable to engage in the church correctly, so we tell ourselves, better to not get involved. Better to not even try. Let others who are godlier and obviously better equipped than I am, let them handle the upbuilding of the church. Because after all, what would little old me possibly be able to give that would be good to the people of the church? I don't know if you've ever thought those kinds of thoughts. They may seem humble to you, but they actually aren't. Consider, what would we think of a home builder who says, I've been trained by the boss. He's told me he's confident I can do the job. I have the building plans. I have all the tools I need to build this house, but I don't think I can do it. What we say of this guy that he's a humble and conscientious worker who really cares about doing a good job? No. We would say that this self-focused worker is proud, 
lazy and or full of unbelief. And so it is with us when we fear, and that causes us not to engage in the church. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.7, Timothy 1.7, God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. The truth is, you can engage in the church, even courageously, because you do have something good and important to give. And that important good doesn't come from yourself, and it's not for yourself. It comes from God, and it's for God, and it's for your brethren. And let me show you this from an important passage. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 to 11. And if you're using the Bibles that are in front of you or next to you, that will be on page 1214. Page 1214 in the few Bibles. We're in 1 Peter 4. In the letter of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter, just to remind you, he writes to persecuted Christians. And he urges them to love one another and live holy lives amid their suffering. In chapter 4 specifically, Peter urges Christians to follow Christ's example in suffering while doing what is right, waiting on God to provide vindication and reward at the proper time. Now, in verses 10 to 11, we're going to see how Peter describes engagement in the church as fitting into that greater purpose. So let's read those verses now, and we'll include a few other verses for context. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Peter says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now you can see that the main topic of the passage that we just read is relations in the church. In the first few verses, verses 7 and 9, we see exhortations to fervent love, prayer, hospitality. This all has to do with one another relations, right? But notice, starting in verse 10, Peter exhorts each believer in the church to use his gift to serve others in the church. And this command is framed in terms of stewardship. Peter says, as each one of us has received of the manifold, or we could translate that diversified or many-colored grace of God, we are to minister of that grace, from that grace, to one another. This is... Not an optional task. Using our gift is a matter of faithful stewardship to God. And notice the attitude in verse 11 in which these gifts of stewardship, or rather these gifts that we are to steward, are to be ministered. It's with an attitude of confidence. 
Peter says, if you have a speaking gift, whether counsel, encouragement, teaching, or preaching, how should you use it? Peter says, as one who is speaking the very utterances of God. Whoa, wait a second. What are the qualities of the utterances of God, of the words of God? Authority, power, life, comfort, encouragement, conviction, wisdom, and we could say more. So Peter says that when any of us are ministering by a speaking gift in the church, and that's one of the primary ways that we can minister to one another, not to be as one speaking that kind of word, authoritative, powerful, life-transforming, wisdom-giving, comfort and conviction-bringing, even the words of God himself. And why ought our words to one another be treated as if they were that? Because they are that or at least they should be. By various means in the church, yet ultimately all dependent upon our sufficient Bible, we speak to one another the life-giving word of God. And if we have such a wonderful, comforting, sufficient word to impart to one another, shouldn't we do it enthusiastically, confidently, even joyfully? This is the word of God I'm sharing with you. And then what about the other side? Verse 11 goes on to say that if you're ministering with a serving gift, some kind of practical help that doesn't involve speech so much, serve as one serving by the very strength of God. Now again, that's pretty amazing because what is the strength of God like? Powerful? Enduring? Infinite, inexhaustible? Why should one serve as if serving with that kind of strength? Well, same as before. Because that is, in fact, the strength that you have to serve. God's Spirit is empowering you with that kind of strength. So then, to be good stewards of the grace of God, the manifold grace of God that we have all received, we ought to both speak and serve in the church as those speaking and serving with God's own wisdom and power because that's actually what we're doing. And what is the result of this divinely empowered ministry in the church? End of verse 11. Glory to God through Jesus Christ who is worthy of it. So brethren, we don't need to be afraid to engage in the mutual upbuilding of the church. You are equipped for this. You are equipped, equipped with the Lord's word and the Spirit's power so that not only can you do the work set before you, but you can do it well, joyfully, and to the glory of God. Peter additionally says in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, 2 Peter 1, 2 and 3, I'll just paraphrase this for you, that God's divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus. Whatever you need for 
whatever essential things you need for life and godliness, they've already been provided through Christ and through the knowledge of him, which we have in the word. By union with Christ then, by the indwelling of his spirit, by prayer and by his sufficient word, you can engage in the church as God has called you to do, even comprehensively. We therefore should be confident, even courageous, in looking to meet the needs of our brethren. Now, of course, I should balance that just a little bit with other scriptures. What I've just mentioned to you does not give us license to be presumptuous in our service in the church, to think that we will not need any correction or instruction or refinement in the use of our gifts. No, 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 I've got God's spirit. Don't tell me I need to do anything different. I already know what I'm doing. No, we shouldn't go there. And we also should not assume that every ministry situation in which we involve ourselves will be totally and abundantly successful, at least in an outward sense. There should be a sobriety in our confidence. We should expect even that we will need ongoing equipping and sharpening as we seek to engage in the church and help others. And we also should expect that we can be faithful and we can show real love and ministry and it might not have an outwardly successful result. You will do as God called you to do, but the other person just doesn't respond. We should expect that. Nevertheless, we should have confidence, even courage, as we seek the upbuilding, the mutual upbuilding of the church. And we should settle fundamentally, once and for all, where the courage and strength necessary for this upbuilding work comes from. It comes from not ourselves, it comes from God. It comes from God and what he's chosen to provide. You may remember a famous exchange in the beginning part of the Bible God speaks to Moses in the burning bush of Exodus 3 and 4. God calls Moses at that time to be his special instrument in rescuing Israel from cruel bondage in Egypt. This is a glorious task, but Moses didn't want to do it. Why? Well, he felt inadequate. And he kept giving God excuses. Oh, Yahweh, I'm not worthy. I, I won't know what to say. Uh, I'm not a good speaker. What if they don't believe me? Moses even asked God outright to send someone else, <laughs> which provoked God to anger. But God didn't yield to Moses' stubborn fear and unbelief. Nor did God butter up Moses by telling Moses how skilled Moses really was and how Moses needed to have greater self-esteem. No. Moses' whole confidence for accomplishing this momentous ministry on God's behalf, it really came down to just one simple promise from God, which is what God says in Exodus 3.12. God says to Moses, certainly I will be with you. Brethren, that's all we really need. That's the, really the only promise that we really need to have courage in God's work. God says, I will be with you. He has given us that promise. So we can have courage. If the Lord is with us, we can do what he's called us to do. And just to encourage you a little more, remember what Jesus says to his disciples. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, what will you be able to do? He will say to this mountain, be uprooted and be cast into the sea. 
I don't know if you ever thought about that. Maybe it sounds a little weird to you. This is not a carte blanche to rearrange the Earth's physical topography. No, this is about when you encounter obstacles in obedience or in ministry. Don't despair. Trust me. Proceed forward in obedience and watch how I will move mountains on your behalf. As the great missionary to India, William Carey, famously said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. If our God is with us, we should do that, especially in the church. If we want to maximize mutual upbuilding in the church, let us engage in the church courageously. Let the Lord glorify himself in what he chooses to do. A fifth principle for maximizing mutual upbuilding in the church is number five, engage in the church diligently. Engage in the, the church diligently. Merriam-Webster defines the word diligent this way. Characterized by steady, earnest, and energetic effort. That's a pretty good description of the kind of mutual upbuilding that is needed in the church. The church is not the kind of construction project that only needs bursts of activity. Oh, the ministries are restarting. Everybody, let's work. Or it's the new year. Everybody, let's work. And then activity just gradually tapers off. No, that's not really what the church needs. Instead, you need, and your brethren need, a truly diligent engagement in the church. A steady, ongoing, earnest, and energetic effort that perseveres through times of difficulty and keeps going. Keeps going all the way to the end. Not just of the ministry year, but of your life. Or until Christ comes. In fact, diligence is one principle for church engagement that the Apostle Paul, in multiple places in the Bible, he particularly emphasizes. And I want to show you a few of these. The main one is going to be in Acts 20. If you take your Bibles and turn to Acts 20, we're going to look at verses 34 and 35. In the Pew Bible, it is page 1114. Acts 20, verses 34 and 35. Here we are, back in the book of Acts, a inspired and historical record of the church's birth and growth. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem to be imprisoned for Christ. But he stops in the city of Miletus to give a final exhortation to the leaders of the church of Ephesus, who have traveled to meet him there. And part of Paul's exhortation to these Ephesian elders includes a review of his own behavior among them where he provided an example as to how they should continue to shepherd the church and conduct themselves in the church for Christ's sake. And look what Paul mentions about himself in the two verses I mentioned. Acts 20, verses 34 and 35, and we'll read verse 33 just to give a tiny bit more context. Acts 20, verses 33 and 35. Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. 
in everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now these words from Paul are remarkable, especially because it was his right as a minister of the gospel to be supported tangibly and financially by those to whom he ministered. Makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 9.14. God has ordained that those who minister the gospel get their living from the gospel. But Paul, doing exactly what he exhorted the Philippians to do, he was not only thinking about himself when he came to ministry. He considered the interests of others. And he foresaw that his receiving compensation for gospel ministry, especially as a founding apostle, it might become a stumbling block for some. It would become an excuse to reject the gospel, reject salvation, reject Paul as a true representative of Jesus, because people would say, look, he's only in it for the money. Don't listen to him. Paul wanted to take away this potential stumbling block. And he also saw an opportunity to teach an important lesson about self-denial and hard work to Christians. So Paul decided that he would support himself by manual labor even as he poured himself out in gospel ministry. He became a tent maker, or perhaps leather worker, according to the word used in Acts 18.3. And how did Paul's ministry self-support decision turn out? Well, we're seeing the result here in what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. Look back at those three verses. Verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. How do we know that, Paul? Well, with what I'm about to say next. Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the needs of my companions, the men who were with me, which is an amazing statement. That means that Paul didn't just support himself by his work, but he also contributed to the support of those who were with him. I mean, come on, Paul, how much are you working? Actually, he tells us in 2 Thessalonians 3.8, he says there, testifying about the same thing, with labor and hardship, we, he and his companions, kept working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. Night and day, labor and hardship. Paul, that's extreme. Why do that? Verse 35. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, just like I worked, Paul says, that you must help the weak. Ooh. This is a message just for church elders, right? Well, actually, going back to 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, Paul says his example of working hard on behalf of others, it's a pattern for all Christians. Yes, it does apply especially to leaders in the church, but really it's for all of us. Paul says, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. You see, brethren, Due to weakness, the 
people of the church have a constant need for ministry. And not just physical weakness, physical needs, but spiritual needs. Consider that in Christ's church right now, even in this church, even among the brethren that you fellowship with weekly, there's weakness, there's struggle, there's hurt and sorrow and confusion. People are struggling with love, submission, assurance, obedience to parents, anxiety, fear, death, evangelism, Bible study, God's sovereignty, sexual sin, anger, bitterness, loneliness, forgiveness, and of course much more. What kind of help do they need? I tell you, it's more than one conversation in a Bible verse. They need ongoing help. How's it going to happen? How's it going to happen if not exactly in the way that Paul says? By each of us following his example of hard work on behalf of others. And it's got to be each of us. Pastor Bobby can't do it all. The elders can't do it all. The deacons can't do it all. But if all of us together will be diligent to do our part, then yes, the church can be built up as it needs to be. Notice something else. In verse 35, Paul says that such diligent effort will not just be helping the weak, but what else? It will be remembering the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Which is an interesting statement because you can search the Gospels and that word from Jesus is not mentioned there. Does that mean Jesus didn't say it? No, the Bible is true. We've come to know that. So he must have said it. They just didn't record it in the Gospels. Jesus said this. Paul reports it here. And certainly we know, even if it's not recorded in the Gospels, Jesus definitely lived it. Jesus also worked hard in his life, sometimes quite evident. He sometimes ministered to so many people that there wasn't even time to eat. That's mentioned in Mark 6, 31. He frequently would withdraw from others, sometimes early in the morning, to go by himself and pray. That's Mark 1, 35 and Luke 5, 16. Jesus also got so tired from one day of teaching that he stayed sound asleep in a boat even though it was experiencing a raging and life-threatening storm. Jesus worked hard to give to others, which means he had to give up some of the pleasures of this life. Didn't get to enjoy them all the time. But does that mean that Jesus was miserable? Far from Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We know that from Isaiah 53, but there was also no one more joyful than Jesus. I mean, he's God. Joy is part of his essence. And he also testifies that he found utmost blessing, even happiness, in pleasing his Father and giving to others. It was a blessing for Jesus to give, a greater blessing than to receive. Paul testifies of the same thing. Yes, look at what I've given up in my life. Look at how hard I've worked for the church. But I tell you, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
It's true for Jesus, it's true for Paul, and it can be true for us. Let us never believe the lie of laziness, that a life of comfort and ease, a life of pursuing the pleasures of the world, a life of others serving you is where true joy is to be found. Certainly our entertainment, materialistic culture sells us that. That's not true. The opposite is true. A life of diligent effort toward what really matters, that is given up on behalf of Christ, on behalf of others, that is where true joy and blessing and life is found. It's like Jesus says. He who holds on to his life will lose it, but he who gives up his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel, he's the one who will find it. And to find life, give up your life. Of course, it is not wrong to enjoy the simple pleasures that God gives us in this life. We've learned much about that from Ecclesiastes in past months. But don't let inordinate devotion to those simple gifts cause you to miss out on the greater gift of giving yourself to others for the sake of Christ. That's the best way to enjoy life. I do want to mention a few other scriptures that emphasize the need for diligent engagement in the church. Just two. Ephesians 4.3. Ephesians 4.3. You can just listen. Right after mentioning the need to walk worthy of the gospel and live with one or live with one another in the church in humility, Paul writes, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's that word again. The remarkable unity that we enjoy in Christ, it will not be preserved without our constant, eager effort. Or how about we just go even more basic. Proverbs 12, 24 Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. It's just basic wisdom from God that diligence leads to lasting reward. But this proverb gives us a special warning. If you're not willing to do the hard work in the beginning and the hard work that is necessary each day, well, guess what? you're going to face harder work and much less enjoyable work later. And that's true for the church, too. You don't want to do the hard work now? Wait till your church develops a whole bunch of problems. <laughs> and there will be a much harder work then. Of course, not all of us have the exact same capacity when it comes to hard work. God has given to each of us a different measure of faith, even just physically, some of us function better on less sleep, less rest time than others. But we don't need to compare ourselves to one another. We just want to listen to the call we have from Christ. All of us can and should, according to our ability, engage in the church diligently for our own sake and for others' sake. The sixth and final principle from the Bible to maximize mutual upbuilding in the church is number six, engage in the church purely. Engage in the church purely. We can imagine that nothing would be more damaging or discouraging on a construction site than workers who don't work and only pretend to be working, or even worse, they actually 
actively weaken the structure that has been given them to construct. They weaken the structure with their own self-serving actions. Our Lord Christ, the builder and architect of the church, he will not tolerate those who only engage in the church hypocritically or who unthinkably target the fellow members of the church to involve in sin. If we want to maximize mutual upbuilding in the church and avoid the fearful chastisement of God, we must commit to holiness in our own lives and in the communal life of the church. You can see this clearly from at least one scripture. Please take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. It's page 1143 if you're using the Pew Bible. We're in 1 Corinthians now. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church with several problems. Main problem in the church at Corinth is pride, leading to division, leading to lack of unity. But a related problem was how the church tolerated known and unrepentant sin in the fellowship. As Paul explains at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man in the church who was in an ongoing incestuous relationship with his father's wife, probably to be understood as his stepmother. This would have been considered unthinkable, terribly scandalous even among pagan Romans. But the Christians at Corinth? Astoundingly, they not only did not confront this man or remove him from their fellowship, but they actually boasted in their loving tolerance of him. Paul, for his part, confronts the church, and he reminds them why church purity is so necessary. Let's hear the core part of Paul's argument and the exhortation of 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. Paul speaking again here. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul begins in verse 6 with a pretty straightforward statement. He tells the Corinthians, your boasting is not good. Your glorying in your own loving toleration is not right and doesn't really build up the church. Why not? Well, Paul explains with a rhetorical question in verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Now that do you not know construction... We hear that from Jesus sometimes, too. It's a form of humbling rebuke. It's akin to, shouldn't you know better than to do this or to think this? You Corinthians, who apparently pride yourself on your knowledge and your spiritual maturity, is it possible that you missed such a basic truth as this? What's the basic truth that they weren't paying attention to or applying? That a little leaven leavens a whole lump. Now you might ask, what's leaven? Well, leaven 
to the Corinthians is a piece of fermented dough that acts like modern yeast. The ancients didn't have yeast that they could just buy at the market like we do today. They didn't even know about yeast as a microorganism that causes bread to rise. But the ancients did know and observe that if you put a piece of old dough, old fermented dough, into a new loaf of bread, a new dough mixture, before you bake it, well, leaven spreads through the dough, spreads through the loaf, and causes your bread to rise. Thus, the leavening of a whole batch of dough, it became proverbial for something that automatically, quietly, and completely spreads from even a small initial amount. Now, how does Paul use the leaven expression in this context? Well, he's referring to the spread of sin in the church. When unrepentant sin is tolerated in the church, it inevitably spreads. For people say to themselves, I guess sin's not that big of a deal. I thought Jesus said we had to live lives of holiness if we believed in him, but I must have misunderstood. Because I'm looking at so-and-so. He's very obviously continuing in sin, but he's not ashamed. He's not being confronted. Maybe his behavior is not sin after all. And maybe I can do likewise. Paul clarifies to the Corinthians that this situation of unchecked sin is totally unacceptable before God. And he provides an analogy in verses 7 to 8, using an Old Testament feast, the feast of Passover, he says, Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. In the law of the Passover feast, given by God to the people of Israel through Moses and Exodus, all Israelites were to completely remove leaven from their houses, all the fermented dough, the old dough that they had. They were to completely remove it and only eat unleavened bread for a week and then also meat from a sacrificial lamb on Passover day. This, these are special food guidelines. They were to be part of an act of worship a commemoration of God's deliverance of the people from Egypt, and even more specifically, commemoration of the angel of Yahweh passing over the houses of the Israelites in the final plague, the plague of the firstborn, because the Israelites had the blood of lambs on the doorways of their houses. All the firstborn of Egypt were killed, but the firstborn of Israel were spared. They were passed over. This is commemoration of that. So that law was given in the Old Testament under Moses. Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians here is that believers are to celebrate a new kind of Passover, and not just once a year or a week, but actually continually celebrate a new Passover feast. And how? By a commitment to purity in the church. Christ, Paul says, the ultimate Passover lamb has been sacrificed save believers, not just from the angel of death, but from God's just wrath against sin once and for all, the wrath of hell. 
believers have been saved from that. If you're a believer, you've been saved from that. From that. So what should you do? You should celebrate a feast of worship to God. You should worship the Lord with holy lives. Even cleansing out any old leaven left in your dough. Which specifically in this context here in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 5, it means confronting and as necessary, removing those living in unrepentant sin in the church. And to make sure that Paul is not misunderstood, he clarifies at the latter part of verse 8 what celebrating the new feast entails. He says, celebrating not with old leaven, that is, not with the immoral behavior of your old life, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, not with whatever spreads ill will and evil. So you can't just replace one sin with another sin. That's not going to work. Rather, instead, he finishes with, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The only kind of life that is acceptable to God as worship, even communally in the church, is one of sincerity and truth. A life that not only looks to be in conformity with God's truth, but actually is. Now, none of us can do this perfectly, of course. That's not the intent here. But essentially, characteristically, directionally, we can and we must. Believers in the church are to walk in the direction of holiness and Christ-likeness together as we have been enabled to do by God's Spirit. So what are the implications of this section of Scripture when it comes to what we're looking at in our series Engaging in the church for maximized mutual upbuilding. Certainly we should abide, we should apply and obey the specifics of Paul's command when it comes to dealing with unrepentant sin. We must lovingly confront a sinning brother or sister as necessary according to the Matthew 18 verses 15 to 20 process. Jesus laid that out. You first go to your brother privately, and then you take one or two witnesses, and then you tell it to the church, and you go through the different steps. If necessary, if a person will not listen to the appeals to repent, that person is to be removed from the fellowship. This is to protect the church from the leavening effect, but it is also to further appeal to that erring brother you need to see the seriousness of your sin. We want you to come back. We want you to repent. But until you do so, you cannot fellowship with us. So certainly, we should be applying that from this passage. But more basically, this word from Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, it is a reminder that we cannot expect the benefit from mutual upbuilding in the church if we are, in fact, walking in unconfessed, and unrepentant sin. If you walk in sin, you will not be a source of upbuilding or benefit from upbuilding in the church. You will be a source of corruption. And the Lord is very concerned about that. Now don't misunderstand. I'm not saying... And the Bible is not saying that you should not bring your sin struggles into the church. 
No, you absolutely should. Actually, this is part of how God designed the church. You need the brethren. You need the encouragement, the instruction, the counsel of your brethren to persevere, to overcome sin, to know how to walk in holiness. So yes, bring your sin struggles into the church. But do not, do not secretly or openly bring in some life-dominating sin into the church that you do not intend to deal with, that you are not purposing to overcome, that you are not willing to reach out to your brethren for help in fighting it. This is a serious word from God. And it's a warning not to be shrugged off. Because God makes quite clear in the scriptures just how important purity in the church is to him. You may remember in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, this is the very first church in Jerusalem, very first local church. According to Acts 5, verses 1 to 16, God struck down dead two professing believers because they were living hypocritically before their brethren. They were pretending to be more generous than they actually were. God killed them. It is, as God says through Moses in Numbers 32:23. Moses, writing there, regarding those who think they will get away with unrepentant sin before the Lord, Moses says in Numbers 32:23, "Be sure your sin will find you out." May it never be, brethren. May it never be that someone in this church, knowingly, purposefully, lives a life of hypocrisy among this fellowship, or even seeks to entice others to join him in that hypocrisy. And if that is you today, if you are such a one, you look good on the outside, you look like you're doing the construction work, but actually you're harming the church, then you need to listen to the warning of God in the scripture. Your sin will find you out. And moreover, God says something else. 1 Timothy 3.17, not 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians. We looked at this passage not too long ago. God makes a promise that will prove true in your life eventually. 1 Corinthians 3.17 If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you, the church, are. If you have been living in hypocrisy, today's the day to repent. Don't be a corrupting influence anymore. Be an upbuilding influence and receive the upbuilding of your brethren. Maybe you need to call out for help. Maybe you need to say, brother, sister, as is appropriate, depending on whether you're a man or a woman, I've been really struggling in this way. I've been keeping it a secret this whole time. Help me. Could you show me how I can come back to obedience? That's what the Lord wants you to do. And that's where you'll find blessing. Indeed, when we consider God's purpose in having a pure church, 
it is ultimately for the blessing of the whole church. It is a very happy outcome because if the church is pure, not perfectly, but characteristically, everybody pursuing holiness, if that's really what's going on in the church, everyone takes his own sin seriously, everybody's helping one another deal with sin, then you know what the church becomes? It becomes formed into the image of Christ. The people become like Christ. They act and talk and think like Christ. And do you think those people are a blessing to be around? Of course they are. That's the kind of fellowship that each of us want to be a part of. And we can help create that fellowship if we will take our sins seriously. Engage in the church purely to maximize mutual upbuilding. So that brings us to the end of our list. We've seen from the Bible six principles for maximizing mutual upbuilding in the church. I'll just review them. Number one, engage in the church biblically. Number two, engage in the church comprehensively. Number three, engage in the church humbly. Number four, engage in the church courageously. Number five, engage in the church diligently. And number six, engage in the church purely. You know, though, looking over this list, there's one more principle that we could mention that contains and really sums up all six of them. If you really want to maximize your and other spiritual upbuilding in the church, you should, number seven, engage in the church lovingly. Engage in the church lovingly. Let me show you one more passage. Turn over just a little bit further in 1 Corinthians, the 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 13. This is page 1150 in the Bible, the Pew Bible. If you know your Bible a little bit, or you've just attended weddings, you'll probably recognize this passage. This is the Bible's famous description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. But have you ever noticed what the original context of this passage is? You can glance over 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, and you'll find out the context is ministry of spiritual gifts in the church. That's the context of this love passage. Because you see, the Corinthians had gotten it all wrong. They were using their gifts. They were trying to steward the manifold grace of God in their lives, not to build up others, but to show off. They wanted to exalt themselves before others. Look at my gift. Paul again, patiently, gently confronts their thinking and behavior. First, by pointing out in the first three verses of chapter 13, that all miracles, knowledge, faith, and sacrificial service, they mean nothing without love. It's just like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's useless distracting, it's annoying. And he points out at the end of the passage, verses 9 to 13, that the miraculous spiritual gifts that the Corinthians were so obsessed with, speaking in tongues and prophesying, they have a good purpose, but they won't last forever. But love will. Love will last. And then in the middle, verses 4 to 8, Paul gives a description of what love is really like. Even the love that God has commanded us as his people to show to one another in the church, just like God shows to us. 
So as we close today, and as you consider how you practically can engage in the discipline of the church now and in the coming weeks to God's glory and to your own and your brethren's benefit, listen to how Paul basically summarizes everything we've looked at under the category of love. Here is how to engage with your brethren in the church to maximize mutual upbuilding. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. May the Lord stir us up to such love together. Let's pray. God in heaven, your church truly is amazing. A precious mystery. And thank you, Lord God, for making us a part of it. It is indeed the place of blessing. It is so necessary for our spiritual health and growth. But Lord, there are so many things that want to keep us away from church, from our brethren, from really engaging with one another. And Lord, even when we are in the fellowship, Lord, there are things that can actually prevent our engagement from being effective. We can be afraid, feel like we have nothing to contribute. We can be struggling with sin and feel like we need to hide it, hold on to it. And Lord, we can also become distracted by the affairs of the world, the pleasures of the world, so that we don't put forth the effort that being a part of the church really requires. But Holy Spirit, Free us from these things. Jesus, Lord of the church, build us in such a way that we put off these wrong thoughts and wrong ways of living. And we come back to what we really need. We need your church. We need the mutual upbuilding that is so present in the church. We need to not only give love according to the love that you've given us, but also receive it. Lord, your church has such a beautiful design. Make it so, God, that we indeed take advantage of it as you've meant us to. Show each of us today as we think through these things how this can make a practical difference in our lives. That we can say, I'm rearranging my schedule to engage in the church. I see that I have an ability to help out in this way in the church. I'm going to approach someone to talk about that. Lord, I pray that as we go into this next month, that it would be one of renewed devotion to one another, renewed love for you and love for one another. And Lord, if there's any who do not know you yet, they're just a visitor into this fellowship, 
in the spiritual sense. They don't know yet the love of the brethren, nor your love. They don't know freedom from wrath, freedom from the slavery of sin. Lord, show them, convict them, help them see that they really are on the outside looking in, but they could become a part of the family. They could be saved by repentance and faith. Lord, use us to minister not only to one another, but to those, Lord, who are not yet a part of the fellowship, but could be. We can only do this by your strength, God, but you have provided it. You promise that you empower us for ministry. So, Lord, we'll take you, take you up on that by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.